Good morning. I'm coming to you this morning from our preschool and three and four year olds room that is taught by Sam and Charlotte Nardi. And we just wanted to say how appreciative we are to all of our teachers. We know that you guys aren't able to, to be with your kids and that that's really hard right now. I hope that you're finding ways to connect with them even while we're apart. But uh, I wanted to say thanks to Sam and Charlotte for letting me use your room this morning as we get going. So this is our first Sunday where we're hoping to be back a meeting in person together, uh, even though it's going to be outside, even though it may be raining this morning, even though the gnats are flying around and buzzing and annoying us, that sort of a thing. But uh, we're happy to try and gather together again. We're going to do uh, more and more as we continue on. It's going to be a slow process, but I want to encourage you guys to stick with us, to stay the course, and to continue encouraging one another and reaching out. Just because we're talking about getting together in person doesn't mean we should stop reaching out in the other ways that we've been doing so far while we've been social distancing. So continue encouraging one another. I hope that you're encouraged by this morning's time, either here at church, in your car here at church, um, in the parking lot, in the, the, the lawn, or whether you're watching this at home. Hope that you're encouraged by what we talk about and just by, by being the body of Christ. We are still all one, even though we have not been able to gather together as His people in person. And we know that gathering together is what makes us the body of Christ. Uh, it's not this building. It's not this room. As beautiful and wonderful as these things are, we know that the body of Christ is the people of God. And so uh, with that in mind, we don't fret the future. We don't have to worry about what's coming or what we're going to be doing in a month or six months because we know that God is sovereign and we know that God is going to hold his church together no matter what happens, no matter how long we're apart in person because God is still our savior. He is our shepherd who is gently uh, sometimes um, and leading us towards the green pastures. And so we, we believe that still, even in the midst of all of this. So this morning, I'd invite you to turn in your Bible to Ecclesiastes chapter 4. This morning, we're going to finish the chapter and look at verses 4 through 14. The preacher of Ecclesiastes turns once again to the idea of work. But in chapter 4 here, his purpose in bringing it up is a lot different than his purpose was bringing it up back in chapter 2 the first time. Uh, There in chapter 2, verses 18 through 26, Solomon talks about the vanity of work and the fact that you can't take your stuff with you. It doesn't matter how much wealth you've accumulated here on this earth. You can't take it with you. When you die, it all stays behind. It gets left behind. And when you leave it all behind, you can't be certain how it's going to be used by the generations that come after you. The things that you worked so hard for, what kept you up in the middle of the night, sleeplessly worrying about, all of that stuff... Is it going to be used in a way that you would be proud of? Is it going to be squandered and wasted? Will the person that you leave it to use it like a wise person or or foolishly? We have no way of knowing or controlling those things. And so the preacher in chapter 2 considers it all the work that we do, it all vanity. It's just all meaningless in the end. Now, in our text today, in chapter 4, Solomon takes us back to the idea of work. But this time, he explores the vanity of work as, it, as it's a means of keeping up with the Joneses. 
if you will. So before we uh, dig into conversing about that, let's pray together. Lord, as we read this text and we let the truths of it sink down deep into our hearts, Lord, I pray that uh, you would make all of that happen by the power of your spirit this morning. Lord, whether we are gathered together in our cars, on the lawn, virtually, through the internet, watching this, Lord, uh, we are your people, the sheep of your pasture, and we know that you are leading us in right, the right way, the way that you would have us to go. And Lord, so I pray as, as we have, um, as we think about your word this morning, uh, reveal to us the areas that we need improvement that we need to die to ourself, that we need to boast in Christ and to exalt you and, and not, our, not ourselves. So Lord, make that happen uh, as we read your word this morning. In Christ's name, amen. So turn in your Bible to Ecclesiastes chapter 4, verse 4. We'll read through the end. Then I saw that all toil and all skill in work came from a man's envy of his neighbor. This is also vanity and striving after wind. The fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. Better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and striving after wind. Again, I saw vanity under the sun. One person who has no other, either son or brother, yet there is no end to all his toil, and his eyes are never satisfied with riches, so that he never asks, For whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This is also vanity and an unhappy business. Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A a threefold cord is not quickly broken. Better was a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king who no longer knew how to take advice. For he went from prison to the throne, though in his own kingdom he had been poor. I saw all the living who move about under the sun, along with that youth who was to stand in the king's place. There was no end of all the people, all of whom he led. Yet those who came later will not rejoice in him. Surely this is also vanity and striving after wind. So here in verses 4 and following, we understand the idea of envy. Or jealousy. That's what was driving uh, the work of many people in the world. Still the same today. This should teach us that envy or jealousy is not the right motive to work hard. So work and toil, remember, those things are not bad. Those things are not the enemy here. He, he's already said in verse uh, 22 of chapter 3 that a man should rejoice in his work. Work isn't the problem. All of our work should be done, as Colossians 3.23 says, should be done heartily as unto the Lord, not man. Okay, so this should tell us that how you work is important. Are you working hard? Are you working lazily? Why you work is also important. Are you working to boast in your own success? Or in your own accomplishments? Or are you working to try to outdo someone else in business or in your job? So the word here that's used for envy 
is also translated zeal, which kind of has a more positive ring to it, if you will. But what happens when you are always trying to keep up with the latest and greatest? You know, when you try to keep up with the latest and greatest, you you work hard and you get something that is the latest and greatest. Well, as soon as you get it, guess what? It's not the latest and greatest thing anymore. There's something newer, there's something greater and later that comes out in, in short order. And there's a solid chance that the person that you're comparing yourself to is going to have something nicer than what you just got in no time. Especially if they're playing the same game that you are here. Think about this. The entire advertising industry is based on and exploits this problem in our human nature. This character flaw, if you will. And they're telling you, hey, you work hard. You deserve that. You can find that anywhere from car commercials to soda commercials. You deserve that thing. And it gets you to imagine yourself driving that brand new car down your street, right in front of your neighbor's house where he's watering the lawn and he watches you drive down the road and he is full of envy and you are full of joy because of it. That's what the advertising world is trying to get us to see. And, And that kind of lifestyle just perpetuates this cycle of consumerism and jealousy and and really just discontentment in general. This is not what God has called believers to. Now, it's not it's not wrong to nice to own nice things. Okay, that that's not the problem unless your motivation is pride or envy as Solomon puts it here. So, if that's the why of your work, Solomon says, it's meaningless in the end. If all you work for is just to make someone else jealous or because you're jealous of someone else or just to accumulate wealth or to accumulate fame or renown, it's all vanity in the end, he says. Now look at verses 5 and 6 of chapter 4. These are some short and sweet, just kind of knowledge bombs that Solomon is dropping here. But they're said in a way that's sort of strange and probably needs some explanation. So when in verse 5, he talks about, uh, refers to a man folding his hands. This means that this person, this man, refuses to work. For whatever reason, he refuses his work. And ultimately, when someone does that... They hurt themselves. They eat their own flesh, so to speak. It's, it's a big deal. We should understand from this that laziness is wrong. But so is working hard out of jealousy. Both of those things go against God's best for His people. I, I think of Proverbs 27.4. It says, Wrath is cruel. Anger is overwhelming. But who can stand before jealousy? You can visibly see the effects of anger or wrath in a person. And oftentimes those things can be kind of appeased in them. So they're not angry anymore. But jealousy, man, that is bound up secretly within a person's heart. The heart of a jealous person inwardly works for the ruin of someone else. And most of the time, you can't even see it. Sometimes you can't even see it in yourself. As commentator John Gill puts it, all mankind in Adam 
fell before the envy of Satan. For it was through the envy of the devil that sin and death came into the world. Isn't that true? Because of Satan's envy of God and jealousy of the Lord, him and a third of the angels were thrown out of heaven. And now Satan uses envy as a tool to destroy mankind. To destroy and divide you and me. And so often, we just join into that willingly. So verse 5 is an encouragement to work with the right attitude for the right reasons. And verse 6 then is another caution to keep our work in the right perspective. Okay, He says in verse 6, a handful of quietness. This is referring to just being content with what you have. Even though it may be less than the person who has two hands full of toil and striving after wind. This, I don't think, is an encouragement to be lazy. It's certainly not for me. Solomon is just taught against that. But instead, this is another way of communicating that we should be happy to work hard and be content with what we have. Instead of just constantly knocking ourselves out to have the latest and greatest all the time. Now he's already said that it's vanity to do that. And now he says that it's also it's striving after wind. You can't catch the wind. You can ride the wind. You can, you know, use the wind for certain things, but you can't catch it and contain it fully. And if you're expecting the things of this world to fulfill you and make you ultimately happy, the truth is you're going to be disappointed. So work hard, but not out of jealousy of someone else or out of an attempt to fill a void in your life because those things, they don't work. They don't really fulfill you. So this tells us that earthly stuff, that is never going to replace a relationship with Jesus. The things that you accumulate here on this earth are temporal. They're passing. They will not last forever, but a relationship with Christ will. And so the stuff of this world will never replace a real relationship with Jesus Christ. Look at verses 7 through 12. In these verses, Solomon points out another vanity of the here and now. Staunch independence. Okay, This is the attitude that says, hey, I don't need anybody. I can do it all my own. And asking for help is a weakness. That kind of an attitude. So what the preacher in Ecclesiastes is getting at here, I think, is that when a person makes work their God, for whatever reason, they eventually find themselves very alone. Alone, by themselves. If you continue in your toil and you're never satisfied, more than likely, you're eventually going to end up lonely. You, you know how this plays out. Um, when a parent is dedicated to their work more than their family. Okay? You, you've seen the Hallmark movie where the dad neglects his wife and his, his children and he works long hours to try to be successful so that he can give his family everything that he thinks that they want. But in the end, the kids and his wife, they, they give up all of the fancy stuff just to have him more, have more time with their dad. And eventually, at least in the Hallmark movies, the dad comes to his senses and he asks himself, I think the same thing that Solomon is asking here in verse 8. He says, for whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? Or to ask another way, what am I gaining from all this work when I don't even know my family? 
If my family is truly the most important thing to me, why am I living and working this way? Why am I sacrificing the pleasure of being with my family? Why am I sacrificing it with endless toil and long hours at the office or at my job? When Solomon asks the rhetorical question, for whom am I toiling? Most of the time, the answer is me. I'm the one I'm toiling for. Now, however, however we want to dress it up, when we evaluate our jobs, or elevate rather, when we elevate our jobs over our families, the reality is that I am the one that I'm working so hard for. It's not really for them. I'm not really working long hours to provide for my family. I'm usually doing it to try to prove something. To something to myself or something to someone else. And most of the time, the story ends with me ending up lonely. So this morning, if if you're listening to this and you feel like this is striking a chord with you, if you feel like this may be describing you, please hear what Solomon is saying after this. Even harder than just evaluating yourself, I'd encourage you to, to maybe ask your spouse and say, does this describe me? And be ready to have a real conversation with how they respond. See, steadfast independence, it's going to leave you lonely. But a wise person, Solomon says in verse 9, willingly works side by side with someone else. And by doing that, they receive, he says, a good reward. So the alternative to going it alone is joining with another person and working together. Look at verse 10. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. Look at verse 11. If it's dangerously cold outside, two people can lie together from freezing and and keep warm, it says. They'll survive, which is obviously better than freezing alone. Verse 12. Two will withstand an attacker where only one person might be overtaken by that same attacker. So what are these things teaching us? What is Solomon getting at with these things? I think it's just real simple. And you probably heard it before. I've said it to some of you before. It's this. We are better together. We're better together. Instead of giving in to the trap of selfish striving and and or jealousy, a wise person is going to cooperate with other people and also lift other people up. Verse 12 says a threefold cord is not quickly broken. Now, this is often used at weddings to symbolize the the three strands of the husband, the wife, and the Lord. And it's, it's true. If God is weaved throughout your marriage relationship, this is not a connection that will be quickly or easily broken. It's, it, it is a threefold cord that is not easily broken. In fact, it has your marriage, if Christ is weaved throughout, it has every hope of lasting because he is just as much a big part as each of the spouse in there. He's one of the three strands. In fact, I would say that Christ plays the biggest role in your marriage. He's the glue that holds everything together. But in a more general sense, what he's talking about, the threefold cord, uh, it's talking more generally about the value of plurality, of multiple counselors, of multiple people involved. Now, we say things like this. Teamwork makes the dream work. That's true. But Scripture says, hey, where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I in their midst. We say 
Two heads are better than one. Scripture has said, where there is no guidance, a people falls, but in the abundance of counselors, there's safety. We say, many hands make light work. Boy, that's true. The scripture says, I I exhort the elders among you, that's plural, shepherd the flock of God. So throughout the Old Testament and also throughout the New Testament, we're constantly told that a plurality of godly people, wisdom and advice are a blessing from God. Now, there are people who love being in the wilderness all alone. There are TV shows that I enjoy watching of people who are living in the wilderness all alone. I guess they're not alone if there's a camera crew recording them. But I'm pretty confident as well, especially at this day and age, that there are moms and dads out there who would love to spend more time in the wilderness alone by yourself, or at least by yourself, maybe not in the wilderness. You'd love to just go get on an island away from everything else and enjoy some peace and quiet. But you know what? Deep down, we were made for friendship and we were made for companionship. Put it a different way, I think we were made for community. You may get your own mansion in heaven one day, but you know what? You don't get your own island, okay? It's, it's not even just going to be you and Jesus in heaven. And he hasn't saved people from every tribe and every tongue and every nation for us to assemble in heaven and then be in our own separate little spaces and groups again. No, no way. That is not how God's plan is going to roll out for, for us, for his people. We're all going to be together, together. Not in little groups together, but together. We're all going to be together, praising the name of our Savior with one voice. So, not only as are we as the human race better when we work together and lift each other up, but certainly this should be true of believers. The church should model this clearer than anyone, both in our individual lives, but also as the church gathered, the Bride of Christ. So here's some questions for self-evaluation this morning. Are you willing to work together with people in the church? Or are you constantly demanding your own way? Are you lifting people up in the church and encouraging them and coming alongside of them? Or are you putting people down behind their backs or maybe even to their faces? Psalm 133 verse 1 reminds us that it is good and pleasant when brothers and sisters dwell in unity. In unity. To get we're better together. So verses 13 through 16 back in Ecclesiastes chapter 4. This is a section that tells the contrasting stories of an old king who is described as he can no longer he no longer takes advice. And a young man who was born poor in the kingdom, but who ruled in his place, who supplanted him. But you know what? If you follow the story, the short story here, even though the young man ruled well, and he did it over endless people, that's how it's described. This is showing that his reign and his kingdom was was huge. It was very great. Even though all of those things happened, verse 16 says, those who came later after him, they didn't rejoice in him. They did not rejoice in him. So even though he ruled well, and it was this rags-to-riches story, this young man wasn't really remembered or cared about by future generations. All of his success, 
all of his popularity, all of those things that he actually gained by true wisdom, you know what? It didn't last. It's all vanity and chasing, striving after wind. I wonder, are you tired of hearing that yet? We're only finishing chapter 4 today. There's several more chapters to go. But are you tired of hearing this idea of vanity and striving after wind? I kind of hope you are tired of hearing it. You know why? Because then that would hopefully mean that you're starting to get it. That would hopefully mean that I'm starting to get it, to get the point of what is being taught to us here. But I want to, I do want to make sure that we're on the same page when it comes to a couple of these phrases that are repeated over and over in the book of Ecclesiastes. So first, how we understand the phrase, all is vanity, is important. When you hear that, when you hear talk about vanity, how we understand what he's mentioning here is really important to us. Because if, if we view everything about life as vanity or meaningless, then you know what? We're going to be left with a desperately bleak outlook on our time here on this earth under the sun. What does it all matter Anyway, if everything is meaningless, what does life matter? What does it matter if I work hard or if I am lazy? What does it matter if I uh, work hard to keep my integrity, even when it's really difficult? Or what does it even matter if I set a good example for Christ? Or if I don't, if it's all vanity in the end, if none of it matters? You see how we can fall down that rabbit hole really easily? I want us to remember the Hebrew word for vanity is hevel, which means vapor or mist or even breath. This was mentioned all the way back in the first chapter of Ecclesiastes when we were giving out study guides for, for that time. And we encourage you in that first chapter to, to read or to watch the Bible project episode on Ecclesiastes on YouTube. If you didn't get a chance to do that, I'd encourage you to to watch that again. It gives a great synopsis and helps us understand this idea of vanity more. Um, But hevel means vapor, as it is described there. And so chasing after the things in this life eventually pass away, just like trying to grab at smoke. It doesn't work. If you ever sat around a campfire and tried to grab the smoke, you can contain it in some degree, but not all of it. And you can't contain it forever. It just it slips through, especially with you're trying to use your fingers. It slips through our grasp. And you know what? It's really, it'd be really frustrating. Now, I've been wanting to make this distinction for a while now. So let me do it today. The pursuit of earthly things is ultimately meaningless. But the distinction that I want to make is that the things done for Christ do last forever. We know two big things. Number one, that our lives have meaning because we were created in God's image as image bearers of Him. And He doesn't do anything in vain or without purpose. And secondly, we were created in Christ. Ephesians chapter 2 affirms for good works. We've been saved and created, recreated in Christ Jesus to do good. Not only that, but James chapter 2 tells us that if all of our works don't line up with what we say we believe, if we claim to believe one thing and then none of our works line up after that, then James says, you're fooling yourselves. You have no faith at all, really. 
So this tells us what we do in the here and now actually does matter both now and in eternity. So ask yourselves these questions. Are you working hard to get ahead in business or are you working hard to be an example of Christ in your workplace? Are are you being kind so that people think better of you? Or are you simply being kind because Christ has been kind to you first? The thing that sets Christians apart is not only what we do, but I think why we do it. Charles Studd is a name you've probably never heard before. He lived about 1860 through 1931. He was converted as a young man in Britain, and he graduated from Trinity College in Cambridge. Uh, He was also an accomplished cricket player. He played in a famous uh, match against Australia, and he was the son of a wealthy man. He was deeply impacted. After he graduated from college, he was deeply impacted by the sickness that his brother was going through. And he began asking himself some, some really potent questions. Things like, you know what? What about, what does all the fame from being a famous cricket player really matter? What is the honor of higher education or the wealth of his family? What does this really matter in the face of eternity? He was heavily influenced as a young man by the work of Hudson Taylor, and he joined six other guys from Cambridge to go and to work with Hudson Taylor in China, and that group became known as the Cambridge Seven. You can look that up. It's an interesting story. But while he was in China with this group, his father passed away. And remember, his father was very wealthy. And so C.T. Studd, Charles Studd, he inherited a, a huge amount of money. He gave it all away. That doesn't seem like that big a deal, but the equivalent of what it would be worth today is over three and a half million dollars he inherited, and he gave it all away. He gave it away to people like George Mueller and what George Mueller was doing with orphans. He gave it to an organization like Salvation Army, the Moody Bible Institute, and other gospel preaching organizations. And he wrote a poem that you may have heard part of before or quoted before. And I think it really captures and puts into words what we've been trying to, to say in Ecclesiastes all along so far. And it's this. You'll, you'll probably recognize the very end. Only one life, a few brief years, each with its burdens, hopes, and fears. Each with its clays I must fulfill, living for self or in His will. Give me, Father, a purpose deep, in joy or sorrow, thy word to keep. Faithful and true, whate'er the strife, pleasing thee in my daily life. Only one life, yes, only one. Now let me say, thy will be done. And when at last I'll hear the call, I know I'll say, twas worth it all. Only one life, twill soon be past. Only what's done for Christ will last. That's the line you've probably heard before. So when using the word hevel in Ecclesiastes, the teacher here, he's pointing out how life comes and goes just in the blink of an eye. And he's exploring what that feels like when you consider both all of the beauty, but also all of the brokenness that's found in our world today. He's thinking and he's observing both deeply and disturbingly on the repetitiveness of life. 
on its shortness, on life's seeming insignificance, and also on the quickness of how things just sort of slip through our fingers. Time just gets away from us, right? He does all of this in light of an eternal God who will one day judge the world in righteousness. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. The second thing that I want us to make sure we have a, a good grip on here this morning is when we come across the phrase under the sun, like we see in chapter 4, verse 7, we need to identify our understanding and our application of it. And this, you may feel like this is splitting hairs, but stick with me for just a moment. When we read the words under the sun, we, we often split the world into two different parts, or think that's what it's referring to. The part below and the, the part above. We think under the sun, everything is a certain way and is bad. And we think above the sun, everything is a different way and it's good. Now, believing this, I don't think is going to turn us into bloodthirsty murderers or anything like that. But I think it might cause us to misunderstand God's workings in our world day to day and in our lives day to day. So life with Jesus doesn't spare us from pain and heartache. Now, it spares us really from the enduring pain and heartache alone and viewing it as purposeless. Instead of the here versus there idea, I'd suggest that we think about it in terms of now versus then. So in 2020, the day and age we live right now, we understand that the sun is a physical part of our universe. And while we obviously can't go and be on the sun, we know that it is an actual destination, like it is an actual place. In Old Testament times, the sun really had more to do with time than it did a place or location. So they relied on the sun to tell the time of day, to tell the time of year, to understand the seasons. For us, we just, you know, we look at our watch or or we look at a calendar, we look at our phone or we Google something or anything like that. For, For Old Testament believers and people, it marked time more than it did physical space. So the phrase under the sun, I think should refer to a time now rather than a place there. Okay? It refers to the days that we're in now, these days now. In this period of time, as long as earth lasts, everything that is done without Christ is vanity. It's meaningless. Now there is a day coming when... The sun is not going to be needed anymore. We find that out in the book of Revelation. There won't be a sun because Jesus Christ is the sun. All the light that we need. Jesus Christ is going to come and he's going to establish his new kingdom. We're going to live in a totally new creation and there's going to be a new order to the world influenced by Jesus. But for now, Ecclesiastes is simply commenting on what this temporal life is like now, today. In our time under the sun. So maybe you're still wondering, why are you still taking all the time to talk about this? Really, here's why. Here's the crux of the matter. There are lots of people that believe that coming to Christ automatically and sometimes instantaneously just changes your life here on earth for the better. 
and they think that your problems are going to begin to disappear, that your health is going to improve, that your bank account is going to start filling up, and your life in general is just going to get easier. Can you imagine if the disciples that walked with Jesus on this earth, can you imagine after he had died especially, if they had this idea of what a relationship with Christ really looked like? I don't know that they would have continued following him. They probably would have looked at everything that had happened and thought, this is not what I signed up for. And they would have left. But they didn't. I think people have this impression of a relationship with Christ, of what discipleship looks like, for two reasons. Number one, because churches have really watered down the truth of the gospel, of what discipleship looks like, of what it really means to follow Jesus. And number two, people believe this because our human nature just wants it easy. We want the easy way out. But the disciples didn't see it that way. They would have been disappointed, and you will be disappointed if that's what you think walking with Christ is going to look like all the time. Many, many people embrace Jesus in crisis only to walk in further suffering and in further heartache. What of those folks? Why didn't they get the easy life that was promised to them? So if, if Jesus just makes your life easier in the here and now, Why have so many believers battled disease and battled difficulty and endured difficult deaths? See, if a relationship with Christ alters our earthly existence just in order to remove pain and suffering, you know what? God has an awful lot of apologizing to do to the martyrs and the saints throughout the years. But in true Christian discipleship, Christ calls us to come along with Him in His sufferings. It's a part of the Christian walk. See, when we live for only what is here and now, when we live for only what's now under the sun and what this world has to offer, we are, in essence, as Solomon put it, we're grasping at smoke or vapor. We're going to end up frustrated and oftentimes alone. But you know what? When our lives are lived for the glory of God, as we anticipate Christ's return, it's there where life finds meaning. Life lived and enjoyed for the glory of God is eternally worthwhile. Please don't forget that. There's joy to be found in our work. There's purpose even in our pain. And there is a reason for friendship. Don't fall down the rabbit hole of looking for purpose anywhere but in what Christ has already done and accomplished and what we now get to do for Him on this earth that has eternal weight and eternal value and meaning. Let's pray together this morning. God, we would ask that You would help us to work hard, but for the right reasons. We thank you for reminding us that that hard work is good. But when we do it out of jealousy or when we do it even out of arrogance, it doesn't bring the fulfillment or the joy or the peace that we expect. Help us to lift other people up, but also help us to receive help from other people. Lord, root out our pride. 
by helping us depend on one another. Because as we saw this morning, that's your wise plan. Lord, reveal to us the folly of striving after the things of this world and and help us to live out our faith by how we live now, by our good works that are done in your name and for your glory. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.